0: today on Ag News Daily.
1: On the other side, you have people think that we're mining the land. We're ecologically very detrimental to it, but we see ranching as the best alternative for large-scale conservation in the West because you have people already living on the land,
0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr and Mike Pearson. Mike, have you gotten electricity back yet?
2: Nope, not yet, but they are saying it. It sounds like tomorrow is a very real possibility for us, so that'll be exciting. How about you?
0: Nope, but I also am feeling that perhaps tomorrow we will get uh, electricity back up and running.
2: Well, we're making some progress, and I know folks throughout the country i have been... Uh, Talking to folks from uh, Grinnell and other parts of eastern Iowa, outside of Cedar Rapids, which was hit particularly hard, as well as Boone and Nevada and several other cities, it sounds like a lot of the rural areas are also going to be getting power back this weekend, perhaps early next week. So I think there's a, a lot of folks starting to get more optimistic about uh, recovery prospects after the storm.
0: Yeah, I think you are right. And, you know, I've had a lot of farmers reaching out um here at trader phd asking you know what is the damage really like there in iowa and i think it's still a little too soon to tell but uh definitely going to see some yield loss this year
2: oh yeah i think that's a given the question is how much of this corn is going to stand back up? and uh i I Just in my drives, and this is all anecdotal, folks. Don't take this to the bank. But in my drives, I've seen now you're starting to see fields with clear green snap. Obviously, that corn is dying and you're you're seeing the dead corn lay flat. I was impressed on my drive back from uh taping this week in agribusiness yesterday at the percentage of corn that was starting to stand back up. And it'll definitely be one-way harvested. It's not gonna be a fun harvest. But I mean, I was surprised in some of the fields that on Wednesday were 25% flattened. They were maybe 50 ending up on my drive back. So that's an improvement. I think here in the next two weeks, we'll start to get a really pretty accurate picture of what this corn crop looks like in Mm -hmm. the state of Iowa, though a lot of questions about grain fill Mm -hmm. will remain until the harvest is underway.
0: Well, we absolutely will get an answer to that question, especially because, as we mentioned yesterday on the podcast, they are continuing to do the Pro Farmer Crop Tour. I received an email about that yesterday, so I'm guessing we have a listener that works with Pro Farmer Crop Tour, but he shared with me some information about the tour, which begins actually on Monday, August 17th, so we will indeed see what they find out there in the field after they complete that tour, it looks like they will be in Iowa um, on Wednesday, the eight Wednesday, the 19th, excuse me. So we'll see folks, you know, of course, heading in and meeting in the middle. But uh, yeah, we'll start to see some preliminary, I would say, crop damage estimates starting as early as next Tuesday or Wednesday.
2: Absolutely. Stay tuned. Could be what the market is looking for. We might be in for a volatile period here over the next, oh, well, shoot, through harvest, I would imagine.
0: I'd imagine you're right, especially as we continue to see prices be pretty volatile
3: as well.
2: Yes. Well, Ashton, what headlines are you keeping an eye on today?
3: Well, I've got a little bit of news for processing plants in the state of Minnesota. Yesterday, this headline came across the news. The Minnesota Department of Agriculture has awarded more than $200,000 in grants to help processing plants increase slaughter capacity. Ag Ag Commissioner Tom Peterson says nowhere was there more evidence of COVID-19's impact on Minnesota agriculture than in the meatpacking industry. He says 46 grants worth $5,000 each will be used to offset the cost of expenses like additional coolers, refrigeration units, as well as slaughter and processing equipment. And MDA awards grants to 21 licensed custom-exempt plants, 11 state-equal-to-processing plants, 6 USDA-inspected plants, and 8 livestock producers with storage needs.
2: All right. Yeah, that is good news for those folks who are out there struggling. And we've got news tying in with that. USDA has announced a series of programs that are available for folks who have been hit by the derecho. And obviously, if you have lost livestock or if you are seeing abnormal numbers of livestock, you may qualify under USDA's Livestock Indemnity Program. So be sure to check that out. There's also the – this is a big one for folks who are growing non-insured crops. So if you are a specialty crop producer or an organic crop producer that doesn't have access to crop insurance, be sure you investigate the USDA's Non-Insured Crop Disaster Assistance Program. Since the derecho was a natural disaster, you should qualify. Uh, be sure to check that out. And uh, EQIP is a great program if you have some immediate needs or you know maybe you need some long-term support. The Environmental Quality Incentives Program or EQIP is out there as well as the Emergency Watershed Protection Program. Most of these programs, you can get detailed information on from your FSA office. A few of them, you may have to check out the USDA website. Uh, For instance, the Tree Assistance Program from USDA is one that a lot of folks might be interested in looking into this year with all the trees down. I don't know if that's an FSA program, so that one you might want to visit the uh, USDA website, to learn more about. So there's a lot of tools out there, folks. Don't be ashamed about taking advantage of any of them. You know, if you pay taxes, you're paying for the programs, get out there and use them when you need to. I don't think anybody is going to begrudge you that.
0: No, I think definitely not. But I tell you what, of course, earlier this week, we saw the... Democratic presidential and vice presidential nominees secured with Kamala Harris uh, as Joe Biden's running mate. We also saw just yesterday Vice President Mike Pence was here in Iowa, more specifically at the Iowa State Fairgrounds. Unfortunately, I didn't get to go and hear him speak, but I have read some reports today talking a little bit more about what he talked about when he was visiting with farmers and folks in kind of a town hall type of meeting last Yesterday, yesterday, not last night. But, you know, he took a lot of time to talk about how Joe Biden and Kamala Harris want to cut America's red meat consumption and production. And you can imagine that wasn't met very friendly by a lot of agricultural supporters and farmers and whatnot. He also spent some time talking about WOTUS and how President Trump rolled that back. Um, He also went on to promise that President Trump is working to still expand ethanol markets, and that they're not done doing that, but uh, didn't really talk much about the expansion of E15 year-round here as much as just looking for new markets. You know, he said promises made, promises kept, they're still looking to fix that situation. Um, He didn't comment too much on the small refinery exemptions, but uh, definitely understood that that was a contentious point for a lot of folks here in rural America so it was neat that he got to come out here he also did a little bit of touring around I believe at looking to look at some of the damage that we've seen um, so yeah I think a lot of folks here in Iowa were excited to go see him and talk to him and I know Mitchell Hora, one of the folks we've had on the podcast quite a bit went to that event so we'll have to get him on here and get some thoughts from him about what the overall reaction was uh, from Vice president Trump or Pence's
3: appearance.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'd be curious to hear. You know, it's it's a shame they didn't touch on the SREs. Yeah, you know, I've been continually frustrated by this. The Trump administration acts as though they're powerless. It's like this crazy EPA just keeps granting these exemptions, and it's like, dudes, it's your EPA. Fire the people if you don't like it. I think the truth is they're happy with it. It keeps the oil industry happy, keeps the money flowing, and they're fine with it. And it's it's frustrating. So I, I wish there would have been more pushback on that Mm -hmm. but it is what it is uh got some news coming out of asia we talked yesterday about the chinese coronavirus outbreak that was brought on by imported frozen chicken well the philippines has taken a look at what happened in china and they have decided to ban chicken imports from brazil based on the the chinese reporting of this uh, coronavirus containment on packaging Now, the authorities in Shenzhen, the city in China, identified the chicken as coming not just from Brazil, but coming from Aurora, which is Brazil's third largest poultry and pork exporter. And uh, Aurora, as of this morning, said the Chinese government still hasn't reached out to them but the philippines department of agriculture said that all chicken products in the market currently have been tested they're coronavirus free they are acting out of an abundance of caution and they are rescinding imports from all brazilian packers not just aurora but they didn't say for how long they're they're, uh, they're kind of taking a play it by ear um you know, stance on this and the company is saying they are taking all possible measures to prevent the spread of coronavirus. And the WHO came out and they said there is no evidence that coronavirus can be spread through food or food packaging. And they urged people not to be afraid of the virus entering the food chain. So there's an update. We'll continue to see what is happening with all of these issues as we get into this next week.
0: Absolutely. Well, Ashton, I tell you what, do you have
3: other any other news for today or should we take a look at the markets? No, I am all out of news. I'm ready to hop into the markets if you guys are.
2: I will be in just a second. I have one other story that I thought was interesting and it's something to think about as we head into our weekend. Over the past several years, there have been a lot of news stories. I've seen them there. You know, you find them on Dateline and, you know, evening news stories things that, come out of Europe, and scientists have been warning about an insect apocalypse. Delaney and Ashton, do you guys remember news stations talking about this stuff that we're losing all of our insects around the world? No, I do not Oh, okay. Well, maybe I've just been following some weird news stories. <laughs> but anyway, this has been a topic of conversation, and it's been used by environmentalists. They've picked up these stories and they kind of run with them, saying that the widespread use of pesticides and herbicides is damaging the number of insects and the insect biodiversity around the world, and this is something we need to be concerned about. Well, a professor down at the University of Georgia, this Professor Bill Snyder, he teaches agroecology, changed... Um, James- Schools. He was teaching in Washington State and moved to Georgia. And in his cross-country drive, he thought there were perhaps fewer bugs hitting his windshield. He was like, "Hey, this is uh, maybe an issue. I should look into." So he dug into it, and uh, he's been looking at this at this data for several years. And they used more than fifty three hundred data points for insects and other arthropods collected from. Uh, 5,300, excuse me, 68 managed sites. This data stretches back 36 years. And he said that in some areas, he did find evidence of a decrease in biodiversity. In other places, he saw an increase in biodiversity. And overall, he said the trend was indistinguishable from zero and there was actually a net gain in insect biodiversity across the country. Now, his data just looks at the U.S. And a lot of the other uh, research on this topic has been you know, focused mainly in Europe. But he says when it comes to the U.S., the insect apocalypse, quote, unquote, is unfounded and is not an issue, so there 's an issue there If you see any of those news stories percolating around on Facebook, uh, check out Bill Snyder and uh, you know post the results let 's uh nip this particular conversation in the bud before the environmentalists here really grab a hold of it.
0: I think you just watch some interesting news stories sometimes, Mike
2: yeah, I do. I try to stay abreast of you know what is happening around the world, but so there's there 's the rejoinder for you listeners if you have that. Wacky vegan cousin talking about the death of all the insects. It it's not an issue, at least here in this country. Okay. All right. With that being said, let's jump into the markets. And folks, we had a little bit of a correction today. We had corn down, beans mixed, and wheat was higher on the day. Taking a look at corn, September down three quarters of a cent at 324.5. December down three quarters as well, closed at 338 even. In soybeans, the September climbed three quarters of a cent, finishing at 897 even. November. September down three quarters, close the day at 98 and three quarters. Wheat, September Chicago up three and a quarter at $5 even. December up three cents, finish the day at 509 and a half. Looking over at livestock, live cattle higher, feeder cattle slightly weaker. The October live cattle contract was up seven and a half cents at half December unchanged, closed at one twelve eighty-two fifty. Feeder cattle September down eighty cents at one forty-six fifty-seven fifty. October down a closing at one forty-seven forty-two fifty. And in lean hogs, October up sixty-seven and a half cents, closed at fifty-three zero two fifty. December up 27 and a half finished the day at 54.62.5. and a half and taking a look at the milk market class 3 milk September excuse me August up 11 cents at 1989 September up 33 finished at 1692 without further ado let's continue this discussion about livestock as we talk with Duke Phillips from ranchlands.
3: Today on the podcast, we have Duke Phillips, CEO and founder of Ranchlands in Colorado. Duke, thank you for coming on the podcast and talking to us today.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Um, Appreciate the opportunity.
3: So Duke, why don't you give us a 10,000 foot look at what Ranchlands is? You guys are doing a lot of great stuff out there. So why don't you give us just a little taste of what you guys are doing? Okay.
1: Okay. We are a um, a cattle grazing and cattle and bison grazing uh, operation that um, runs uh, large scale operations in South Dakota, Colorado, New Mexico, and Texas. Um, they are all a native rangeland where we we pr- we are producers. We raise calves and uh, usually uh, keep them over the winter and the following summer and sell. Although we can change our strategy at any time. So that, that supplies ninety percent of our income. Uh we're different. We're very traditional a lot of ways and that we use horses a lot. Uh but we're untraditional in other ways in that we look at land as a multidimensional resource, not just home for our cattle. So uh we we have a guest business that sees people from all over the world that come to our ranches to learn about ranching and why uh ranching is important and uh stewardship of uh rangelands. Uh Landscape scale rangelands. Uh, we have a leather shop that manufactures goods using, uh, American, uh, methods, saddle making methods. Um, we have an education program that sees, uh, between two and three thousand people a year that come to our ranches, uh, starting with k- kindergartners all the way through, uh, college and adults. And these workshops are Programs will vary from talking about the ecosystem, um, natural, um, you know, natural systems, grazing systems, and then adults, we have painting, photography, plant identification, um, uh, monitoring, financial planning, roping, uh, horsemanship. Um, and so, uh, over time, uh, as we have, um, seen more and more people come to our ranch, um, it seems like our mission has has grown and and to include trying to build a bridge between uh the communities that live outside the town and the communities that live inside of town um uh, because there's this huge gulf uh, that's increasing um, as people spend less and less time out on the country um so yeah that that's um uh what I can think of now in a nutshell.
0: That's that's really neat, Duke. It's really, really impressive and, and neat looking around your website. Like you mentioned, there are all the different facets that you are involved in. Um, but I, I want to ask a little bit more about the education component of what you guys do. Uh, as you mentioned, you have branches in quite a few different states and areas. How do you work with those communities? And are you seeing, I guess I'm envisioning kind of Yellowstone, you know, that show is really taken off here the last year or two. Um, and I'm a big fan of it. I love the lifestyle they live. I think it's super neat, but it seems like they have a lot of challenges that they deal with. Do you also face similar challenges in you know, losing land to urbanization? Are you dealing with a lot of consumers that have questions about what you're doing and is that really what the education component is driven by? Uh,
1: I'm not familiar with um, the program you're talking about, um, but I think really what motivates us is, um, is, as we, as people came to the ranch and they would bring teachers, they'd bring adults, their, their parents, and we just became aware of how, how wide the gap is, uh, between people living in town and people in, in nature. Um, and we, we'd be in a drought, like a major drought. Um, And people would say, you guys dry out here, and they're only 45 minutes away. Um, You know, things like that. And so what we're dealing with is just offering opportunities to share ideas about what ranching is. Because it's probably one of the most misunderstood industries there is. On one hand, you think people, uh, cowboys, are running across the landscape. Shooting guns in the air or sitting on a hill with the straw sticking out of their mouth, looking at the landscape. You know, this very romantic, um, vision. And on the other side, you have people think that we're mining the land and we're ecologically very detrimental to it. But we see ranching as best alternative for large scale conservation in the West because you have people already living on the land who are gener- generating income already that pays for the conservation strategies that are being used and who care deep, deeply about the land and so um it it offers us a huge answer to all uh, you know the ecological problems that we have now so we're just you know we have concerts where uh we have major uh singer songwriters that come to the ranch that attract you know 800,000 people we have art gatherings where we invite painting painters photographers to come to the ranch and paint then we have a large um exhibit in town, and these things started off as being potential uh, businesses where we thought we could make a little extra money, and they turned almost 100% into a platform for us to talk with people and invite them out to really uh, try to understand what ranching is, um, the reality of it, rather than, you know, the John Wayne or the, you know, the the opposite. So really it's more mission driven in terms of trying to take one of our nations um we see it as a cornerstone to American culture you know that's what ranching is and so we're trying to uh, trying to live up to that and and uh, talk to many people as we can
2: about it you know, Duke, it's interesting. One of the things you highlight on your website, and it's something I've heard from a lot of friends of mine in Montana and Wyoming, is, well, the gulf, you mentioned, between folks on the ranch working the land and folks in the city, and how that gulf is now spreading into ranch country. Ranchers are offered up for sale, and they're being bought by folks in California or by conservation groups,
1: and they're, they're changing the use of the land. When you look at what's happening in the world of ranching from a production standpoint, what do you think can be done about it? How do we preserve this land as ranch land? Well, I think, uh, first of all, you have to uh, keep the people who are living on the land there. And uh, the business of ranching is very poor, so we're losing the young generation into town. And so that's part of our model is how do we create a business that is diversified rather than just tied strictly to product land, you know, cattle production. So every land, every piece of land has something unique about it, it a river proximity to town. It could be um, skiing. It could be um, scenic values. And then every person has unique things about them that they like doing. So how do you, how do you match those things together so that a family can continue living on the ranch? Um, we get calls all the time from ranchers who have to support their their ranch by having a job in town. So, Duke, in the the years that you've been doing this
2: sort of outreach and in bringing folks to the ranch, do you think the message is sinking in? Are they learning about ranching? Have you heard feedback from folks that's positive?
1: yeah yeah we do have um uh, you know everybody I mean, we get um you know everybody from the the rural community uh we um uh, and um yeah i mean we're well received by by 90 percent of and, and we're misunderstood by a few people thinking that we're dude ranchers or we do something else but uh, overall it's been very positive very
0: neat well duke we certainly appreciate you coming on today before we let you go we've talked a little bit about your website you've talked about all the different facets of your business would you mind sharing that website with our listeners before we let you go
1: sure uh it is ranchlands.com so a ranch and land with an s at the end of it com. uh we also have uh, a um uh, online magazine called the Ranchlands Review and the Ranchlands Mercantile. So there's three websites um, that uh, we invite you to come look at.
0: Awesome. Well, Duke, thank you so much again for joining us today.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate your guys' interest in this file. If you have any questions or if any of the audience would like to uh, inquire further, my email is duke at ranchlands.com. And so I'm happy to talk to anybody.
3: Thanks again to Duke for coming on the podcast today to tell us more about ranch lands. They certainly have a lot going on over there. And I might just have to make a trip to Colorado. It's only about eight hours from where I'm at. So I might have to take a trip up there and get a little bit of education myself.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, the the ranching lifestyle is... Is fascinating and it's one of the, you know, we didn't talk about it with Duke, but it's an issue that I've heard about in that industry, the aging of ranchers. You know, there's just not enough young folks coming back to take over the farms and to find ways to make these things viable going forward. I think Duke is on the right path. So it's very cool to see.
3: Absolutely. And he did tell me that it's a it's a very family-oriented company, business, whatever you want to call it going on over there. He was telling me about his son and his daughter being involved. So it was very, very neat.
2: Very cool. Well, listeners, if you want to keep up with other neat stories happening in agriculture, just listen to the Ag News Daily podcast. You can find us on social media at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and visit our website at agnewsdaily.com. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go?
0: Let's let them go.